And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world via our online streaming service at our new website at cfmu.ca. And today we have special guest Christopher Black. He's an international lawyer and author who's going to be coming to speak in Hamilton not too long from now. So, Christopher, thanks very much for being on the program with us today. Oh, you're welcome, and thanks for having me on. Well, uh, it was great last time you were here, and uh, we were talking about some related issues, and now, of course, you're going to be putting on a special presentation for us, and I'm going to have the details for that later in the program. But um, you probably don't know about this, as I only sent you the link recently, but I, yes. <laughs> I found out just a couple of days ago, um, I was just about to turn off Netflix. I had been watching TV Sunday night or something, and... Um, on that smart TV box, a CBC item popped up, and it said, U.S. revives Cold War-era planes to defend America. Um, it was a four-minute segment, and it was this fawning CBC interview. Uh, this reporter went over to a U.S. airbase, and they were refurbishing these old B-52s, getting them in flyworthy condition, and the reporter's like, wow, these are some big planes. And uh, the military people were saying, well, you know, uh, uh, it's a... Uh, it's an old plane, but it's still great, and we can, we can send it out. Everyone will see it, and there's something to be said about knowing that we can f send uh, this kind of force and power out oh. there. So they go right. into the aircraft, and the reporter from the CBC says, oh, it's very tight in here. I can barely stand up in most places. Uh, well, why, is it, why is there so little space for people? And the, the uh, Air Force personnel says, well, you know, uh, when they built this, they just wanted to see how many nukes they could cram into it. They wanted to fit <laughs> as many nukes into it as possible. So that's what we did. So, you know, we got all these, uh, these dummy nukes over here that we drill with and we fit a lot of nukes in there and that's what the b-52 does and what we're going to do is we're going to fly it from here thousands of miles uh, across the pacific ocean we're going to fly it near the north korean border uh we're going to fly them and land them on guam and patrol from there if necessary so we're going to we're going to fly these planes loaded with nukes as a big defiant symbol to north korea that we're going to we're going to protect america these these planes are here to, now of course you know how ridiculous this is because uh, north korea built those nuclear weapons that it's been uh, showing off because the us routinely has these huge right. you know what, what can you tell us about these exercises and these provocations they do every year after year after year well, they've been going on since 19, since the Americans occupied the southern part of the country after the Second World War, when they, um, the Soviets occupied the North, and the, and the Americans agreed to the Americans going to the South, and the Japanese troops there only would surrender to the Americans and then cooperate with them to control the southern part of the country and suppress the, um, the socialist movements in the entire country, really. And out of that developed the Korean War, as we all know, and the division of the country ever since. So, but the, the military maneuvers have been going on since then, and they're meant to, A, control the South to keep it within the American orbit and to threaten the northern part of the country, uh, northern part of, of Korea, and keep it intimidated and try and crush it so that the Americans control the entire peninsula and, and use it as a base to, to threaten China, of course. And there's, in, the... In, the um, Interview on the CBC with the BB or the about the V-52s is interesting because you may not know this, but in 1999, when Canada was bombing Yugoslavia and violating all sorts of international law and committing aggression against a European country, um, they weren't doing very well. A lot of planes were shot down. They weren't really damaging the Yugoslav forces very much. So the only way they got President Milosevic to finally give in 
was for the Americans to send two emissaries, a man named Atasari, who won the Finnish um, diplomat who won the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years ago, and Chernomirdin, who was Yeltsin's foreign minister at the time, went to see Milosevic in June 1999 and told him that they had a message from the Americans that unless the Yugoslav government surrendered, they intended to use B-52s, high altitude, to level Belgrade. And they intended to kill half a million people in two weeks. And that was what was going to happen if they didn't surrender. And that's why Milosevic finally gave in. Well, what I know about the Yugoslav campaign, and it's also general knowledge among people who research these things, is that the U.S. did not do very well, as you pointed out, uh, against the Yugoslav army and the Serbian army. It uh, was only able to destroy something like three modern armored vehicles within 78 days. Basically, the forces that the U.S. was bombing, that NATO was bombing, were left intact, essentially. Uh, And and yeah, the war was only ended because the U.S. bombed so much infrastructure, bridges and, you know, water treatment plants and stuff like that that uh, the Yugoslav gave, government gave in because of the, the civilian cost. Well, they it. could have withstood that, but what the final cr- crunch was this threat to commit, to wipe out half a million people, like to destroy it. They were going to actually flatten Belgrade, the entire city, like they did Pyongyang in 1950-53. They flattened Pyongyang. There wasn't a building left standing, and they intended to do the same thing to Belgrade. That's what forced the Yugoslavs to give up. Well, we know a lot about the American way of waging war. Um, right. You know, so that's what they threaten now, and now they're threatening with nuclear weapons, so North Korea has to react, and it's reacting. So, as you say. Well, you know, for those who are just tuning in, we are speaking with Christopher Black. He's an international criminal lawyer on the list of defense counsel at the International Criminal Court, and he was also part of a delegation to lawyers to North Korea. Uh, he uh, writes for quite a number of online outlets. We might hear more about that now. Christopher, you're going to be coming here to Hamilton. Uh, you're coming to the New Vision United Church. Uh, a lot of our listeners are familiar with that location. We've had a lot of good events there. Uh, you know, we, we've had um, Mitchell Chosodovsky. We've had Eva Bartlett. We've had all sorts of people, uh, Professor. Caborsi as well, Stephen Gowans, you name it. So um, it's, it's a great venue. It's at 24 Main Street West, Hamilton, and um, it's going to be on Tuesday, March 20th at 7.30 p.m. Right. So, now, you're also going to be in Toronto, is that right? Yes. Um, on the 22nd at the University of Toronto, I think, um, University, the university building. Oh, well, people can tune into the, the Taylor yeah. Report, we'll tell them in Toronto. Right. So. This is a wonderful event. It's called Immoral and Illegal, Economic Warfare and Threats of Annihilation Against North Korea. And that's precisely what we're dealing with, unfortunately. In the case of what's going on right now, you can talk about these provocations. You can talk about sending nuclear-armed B-52s to patrol along the uh, the Korean border there and, and all, all the escalation, all the problems. But one thing that's in contrast to all the reporting we've done on North Korea, South Korea, the Korea as a whole, is that people are starting to see through the propaganda. Anyone who's watching this for a long period of time is getting a a sense of things that's different from what the corporate media is promoting. Uh, You know, specifically, the, the North and South of Korea are not like two entities, brothers, family members who hate each other permanently. There's a lot of talk about reconciliation. Uh, just, I was on Facebook this morning and I saw there was a photo of the uh, the North Korean leader Kim uh, with a, a South Korean counterpart they were hugging. Uh, yeah. You know this is not something you see. It, you know it, it reminds me of the Olympics where it got to the point people were sending out amusing graphics on the internet of the North and and South Koreans together and Vice President Pence out there in his own corner in the dark. Right. 
Yeah, yeah that, that quite quickly suppressed on in the Western media as soon as it came out that the, the, the North Koreans weren't starving, and uh, they were all well-dressed and beautiful and happy. <laughs> that was, there was shock for a few days, then it, they suppressed it. It was uh, suddenly erased from the, from the TV screens. But, yeah, no, the, when I, we were in Korea back in 2003, um, we were surprised to see many South Koreans in Pyongyang, and there was a lot of people, they call it a hermit kingdom, it's just, I don't know where they get that from, because Korea is quite an open country. People, we saw people coming in from all over the world to do things there, businesses and uh, teaching, and um, there were people from Germany and Scotland and Saskatchewan and Africa coming in and the flights we were in. So it's not what people portray, but I, what we concluded was that the worse the propaganda is against a country, probably the more civilized it is. <laughs> uh, and they won't want you to know that. I mean, the, re- the reason that Americans ban their people going to Cuba, for instance, is not because they want to squeeze Cuba. That's partly it. But also, they don't want Americans to see what other possibility life could be like. Well, a good example. And North Korea is even, North Korea is Cuba on speed. I mean, if you go to North Korea, you'd be really shocked. We were shocked because, frankly, I'm on the left, but even I half believe some of the propaganda I was fed. It was so intense. And when I got there, I was very pleasantly surprised and that it was one of the most civilized places I've ever been. And everybody we met who traveled there had the same impression. And it's not at all. It's just a, it's like everybody's, the people are the same as they are here. They're all fairly well-dressed. They all go around to their jobs and do their things, and have cafes and go to lunch, and children play in parks. It's the same as everywhere else. They did tell me that they had trouble with food supply back in 1995-99 when the Russians cut their oil supply and they hit, got hit by two big typhoons back-to-back, which wiped out the electrical system. And they had big trouble then, but they said nobody ever starved here. We make sure all the people are fed when we're... We believe in helping people, not uh, making money off people. Well, you know, you're suggesting, and it's not quite a joke, this is serious, that the more civilized a country is, the worse the propaganda is against it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can easily point to the example of Cuba, which is a civilized place. I've been there myself. Um, You can look, I think... You gave an example right at the beginning of the program of Yugoslavia. Uh, you know, uh, Yugoslavia, socialist Yugoslavia, was a civilized place, and uh, Germany and the U.S. were doing everything they could to take it apart, right. which they did. You can look at Gaddafi's Libya. Uh, yes. uh, look at it now uh, uh, after it's been liberated by NATO. Right. Right. I think. And you wonder you know, where? And you wonder where? Where's the liberation of Libya now when it's being run by all these thugs? I mean, I mean the, the Western admits they're all thugs and they're murdering people, but where's the liberation now? Well, that's what Syria would look like. <laughs> right now, if the right. Syrian government wasn't fighting against those very same thugs. Another country that was heavily demonized, even though it was one of the nicest places to live in the world before we decided to implement a regime change operation. So this right. this is something you know a lot about, because you have been a consistent anti-war activist. For You were there, I saw you doing the work on Yugoslavia, I saw you doing the work on Iraq, I saw you doing the work on Libya. You know, these are the kind of people we need to get around. These are the kind of voices we need to get around, because you have been conscientious, and you have been a strong defender of international law and what the United Nations are supposed to stand for. And that's what we do here on this station. And that's what I wanted to talk about with regard to North Korea, because, of course, you and Professor Kaborsi uh, from McMaster are going to be addressing this subject uh, on the 20th. And the content of the talk is economic warfare and threats of annihilation against North Korea. I want to reiterate that because this is a very serious issue. 
We can talk about the damage that sanctions do and everything, but it's not just the, the, the usual business of the United States making its threats and cutting countries off from aid and medical supplies and the global economy, which they do, but Canada has been heavily involved in this too. You know, it was not long before the Olympics that there was some kind of summit out west. Right, in Vancouver, yeah. They were deciding the fate of, of Korea, and was Korea invited to that? North Korea wasn't there, the Russians, Chinese, was, it was one side. There were two sides in the Korean War of the 50s, right. and the one side, Canada, U.S., and all those guys, they were had a meeting to talk about what they're going to do about Korea. Uh, that's right. We, that's why Dr. Graham McQueen and, um, proposed the idea of us writing his open letter that we did in the Toronto Star about that meeting, calling that it's an opportunity for the West to engage in dialogue and, and peace talks with North Korea and resolve things peacefully. But in, but in fact, what they did was use it, it seems, as uh, a meeting to con concoct a criminal conspiracy to commit aggression against the people of North Korea and maybe genocide, because they're talking about annihilating the entire country. I mean, and the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court doesn't have jurisdiction over the United States, but could say something publicly, but sits there doing nothing. So the, the Canadian government engaged in, um, took part in a meeting, really, to concoct a conspiracy to commit genocide. And there was nothing said in the press about this here. I mean, people like I can say it, uh, Professor Carbusi can say it, Graham McQueen, you can say it. But what does the mass media say? The mass media goes along with the entire, really, propaganda campaign against North Korea and Russia. All the American enemies are adopted by, in Canada as our enemies automatically because we don't have an independent foreign policy. Uh, I don't think I mean, we can. We don't exist yeah. as a country exactly. In fact, as far as foreign policy concerns, it goes. We, we're just an auxiliary to the United States. Well, that's very true, and it's very much in our observation on issues like Palestine or Venezuela. There is no foreign policy uh, that is independent in Canada. A even opposition parties they uh, adopt whatever Washington puts forward. Mm -hmm. So we're not dealing just with big bad Trump. We're dealing with Canada following these marching orders from Washington. You know, right. maybe you can help clarify it for us because you talk about these sort of threats of genocide, um, and you talk about uh, all sorts of illegal actions. What's Canada been planning? I remember there was talk about um, they were going to seize all, as many North Korean ships as they could and, you know, and search them, and then Canada right. piped in. We had some admiral or some naval staff come in and say, oh, we've got the ships. We've got the ships to go. <laughs> and well, What's going on here? Well, first of all, we don't... Uh, if, they, if they engage in seizing North Korean ships in the high seas, um, that's, a, that's an act of war, and all hell will break loose if they try to do that. If, if it's not just piracy. Um, and as far as Canada being able to do such a thing, where are they going to get the ships? We have a few, maybe three or four or five ships based in Vancouver, half of them break down. There was, uh, last year, I think one or two broke down in the middle of the Pacific, had to be towed back home. We got one submarine. This is a joke. I was, you know, I was These jokes yeah. can be used to provocate a war, a world war. And it's just, in, it's just insane that they're actually talking this way against a sovereign country. Um, how would Canadian people like it if uh, the Americans decided they don't like anything with the Canadian government's doing, decided to imply this, impose the same sanctions on us, and the country started saying, well, we're going to start seizing Canadian ships? I mean, it's just absurd. But people to here just shrug their shoulders and say, well, so what? You know, because they're busy with their lives and they don't care about anything else. But we have to try and make them care somehow, because otherwise the Americans are threatening commit nuclear war against North Korea, and I think myself that the North Koreans have the capacity to hit North America. I mean, it can be very dangerous what's going to happen.
not to the North Koreans, but for us as well. So it's just uh, well, it's surreal yeah. the way they're talking. Well, it is surreal because you know the United States, Canada are used to beating up on faraway countries that are one tenth the size of the United States that aren't as economically developed and can't hit us here. And of course, now they're they're pick, they're playing chicken with a country that has demonstrated the ability to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles and detonate mm. nuclear weapons. And of course, right. that that can, that can affect us here. And it's really sad because. Uh, yeah, people uh, have been detached from the issue simply because they aren't being hurt by the wars and illegal actions that our own governments uh, are engaged in. Uh, you mentioned these sanctions and all this uh, kind of thing. It's, it's amazing that I, I think people are going to start getting really tired of the U.S. putting sanctions on everyone. I mean, if, if you sanction Iran and, you know, you, you sanction Syria and you sanction North Korea and, you know, sanction Venezuela, you're, pretty soon you're sanctioning half the world. Maybe they'll mm -hmm. just trade with each other and stop trading with us, you know? Uh, well, yeah, the word, when they use the word sanction, I remember, uh, the word sanction is, is used, it, it's, it's almost a legal, a legal term, and they use it to give a, a veneer of legality to... Um, economic warfare, because these sanctions, so-called, are not, they're not, they, ins they assume that the person imposing them has the right to do so. The United States does not have the right to impose sanctions on anyone, or tra trade, trade embargoes or war embargoes on anyone, any country. Only the United Nations can do that. Um, and the sanctions, so-called, that the United Nations Security Council has imposed on North Korea are also illegal. In fact, I just found a, an open letter from three high U.S. State Department officials back in 2016. I don't know where I got it from. But it, in it, they say what I just wrote with a, another lawyer in a paper, is that the sanctions that the U.N. Security Council has imposed on North Korea are based on North Korea leaving the non uh, violating the non uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaty, that they violated the treaty by making nuclear weapons. Well, North Korea pulled out of the treaty in 2003, in January. So they have every right to produce those weapons, as do the members of the Security Council. And yet all the sanction resolutions imposed since then are all based on that one false premise, that they're violating a treaty. They're not violating any treaty. And because they refuse to kowtow to any of the sanctions they imposed then, there's more sanctions imposed for them violating the sanctions that were imposed. Uh, so they haven't got a leg to stand on the sanctions are absolutely illegal. I don't know why China and Russia went along with them. They have to explain that themselves. Shame on them, but they may have their own strategic reasons why they've done so. But they haven't explained what they are. We can only speculate. But the Security Council had no right to impose those on North Korea at all. Wow. And North Korea said so in letters to the UN several times. Yeah. So, and now, now Dr. Kerberos, I'm probably sure, will have more expertise on, on the actual economic effects on North Korea. But if you read the reports to the UN Security Council from the various countries uh, going ahead with these uh, sanctions, so-called, they're pretty severe. I mean, they're, they're embargoing almost every, every trade item you can think of, from iron to steel to coal to uh, textiles, uh, importation, exportation. Um, but it seems that North Korea can perhaps is survive on its own, but uh, it's still going to be very difficult. 
I really want to hear what Professor Kaborsi has to say about the sanctions, right. because he's an international, world-renowned expert on this. He's written papers yeah. on the effect of sanctions in Iraq. Uh, right. We all know that sanctions in Iraq killed well over a million people, something like mm-hmm. a million and a half, maybe two million people, citizens, civilians, were killed in Iraq by U.S.-led sanctions. And, right. you know, the sanctions are a weapon of war that hits civilians. It, it's supposed to be done very carefully, but it's actually done quite broadly and widely by the United yeah. States. Uh, and so, you know, when you talk about sanctioning North Korea, a country that the media likes to talk about suffering people in, well, you're going to have massive suffering as a result of these sanctions. You know, this is the kind of expertise we can get at this talk on uh, March 20th, and this kind of expertise we want from you on the issues of international law, because as you pointed out, this is a very scary and almost surreal situation, because they are saber-rattling with a country capable of engaging in a nuclear exchange with us on the North American continent. Right. You know, and, and the sanctions are also um, a war crime when they're imposed in the way they're, they're imposing them, um, because they amount to collective punishment of a civilian population, which is a war crime, a crime against humanity, under the Rome Statute, under the, under the Nuremberg Principles. <clears throat> uh, embargoing a country so that the population suffers in order to put pressure on the government of that country to change its policies, that's a war crime, a crime against humanity, and that's what Canada's engaging in. Um, start, I mean, they're willing to start people because they don't like a government or like, like its actions. Uh, and I don't see, and where's the mora- who gets, who's, where's the morality come from? Who has the morality, the victim or the, or the person imposing the sanctions? Yeah, the, the way the United um, States has treated it's Iraq. It's disgusting, really, what we're going, what this country is doing, and the political parties in this country, the major political parties, that is, um, go along with all this. There's such enormous room for improvement. Um, well, anyway, we can learn the details about the sanctions, what's being planned and proposed to be implemented, the nasty ef- and devastating effect this could have on uh, North Korea, as well as the very devastating consequences of a war uh, in Korea, even a conventional war. And how this all fits into the international legal framework and why, you know, uh, the, the <laughs> these kind of activities really weaken uh, an international system that's already uh, circling a drain in terms of uh, ability to keep international order, uh, respect for sovereignty, stopping World War Three. We're in jeopardy and that uh, nuclear clock has been pushed to something like two minutes, two and a half minutes to midnight. Yes, it's, yes. And I think President Putin just gave the warning last week, you know. Stop it all, or you don't know what's coming down. <laughs> just, just back off and leave everybody alone. Um, why? Like, the thing is, I just saw, I have an article, an old article from 2003, CNN article, apparently, <laughs> funny enough, which talks about the Americans willing to give um, the North Koreans an, a, a non-aggression pact, a statement that they will not attack, if the North Koreans agree not to develop nuclear weapons. And yes, this week... North Korea again stated for the umpteenth time that we're willing to give up our nuclear weapons if you agree not to attack us. Now, I think they're naive. I don't think you can ever retrust more the American government. But they're sincere, because when I met them, they were sincere in that. They said, that's all we want, a peace treaty and a non-aggression pact. We don't want to waste our money on nuclear weapons. It's draining our energies, but we feel we have to. But we're willing to give them up if they promise not to attack us and, re- and remove all the military threats against us. But, of course, the Americans will not do that. They just, in response, what did Trump do just the other day? Impose more sanctions on North Korea. That's the answer. We don't want peace. We don't want to give peace a chance like John Lennon wanted. They want war. And well, they, seem to in- they seem intent on getting it. 
Yeah, this is, seems like the exact crowd of numpties that got us into World War One. You know, the, the, this right. kind of idiot. The, if you don't think that the current people leading the United States and Canada and Great Britain aren't as stupid as the people that got us into World War One, World War Two, think again. You know, and and this will be the last one. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you're concerned about these kind of things, please come to our event. It's going to be at uh, the New Vision United Church on March 20th. That's Tuesday. Tuesday, March 20th, New Vision United Church, 24 Main Street West here in Hamilton. The admission is free. Donations are accepted. It's sponsored by the Democracy Probe International and the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. A notice will be posted on the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War website within 24 hours from now at hcsw.ca. And Christopher, uh, we're not simply interested in seeing you and Professor Kaborsi speak, but we also are interested in your writings. You've done so much work on the issue of uh, protecting what little people and international order we have left. So where can we find your writings? Um, I've written for various journals. I write a lot for New Eastern Outlook, uh, also known as NEO, or sometimes Global Research, once in a while Counterpunch, but uh, on my own blog, uh, ChristopherBlack.com, you might find some interesting things. But um, probably New Eastern Research, I, every once a week or so I publish something. So that's Near Eastern Outlook at Journal Dash. New Eastern, New Eastern Outlook. Yeah. Right. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for being on the program. We're we're going to announce okay. this and give all the details again. And of course, we'll see you on the twentieth uh, here in Hamilton. Right. I look forward to it. Great. Thanks very much, Chris. You take care. You Bye. too. Bye. Bye. That was Christopher Black, and yes, he is an international criminal lawyer, and he is an author who writes uh, quite a large number of well-informed pieces on the dangers of war with Korea, the dangers of nuclear war with Russia, uh, the stupidity of this whole Russia gate and Russophobia, uh, as well as um, problems with uh, all the other interventions from Libya to Syria and so on. So do keep aware of that and do come to the event on March 20th. Uh, this is very important and we've noticed there are a lot more people concerned about potential of war with North Korea than we've had in uh, recent months, recent years, given the um, severity of the conflict that could result if some idiots actually manage to land us into a war uh, with Korea, uh, something that Koreans don't want on the Korean peninsula. But the U.S. seems to find endless excuses to have its nuclear-armed bombers fly right along the border and have massive exercises and tens of thousands of soldiers and ongoing constant saber rattling and endless propagandizing on TV networks and sanctions and so on. This is uh, a dangerous situation. It's something we don't need to be part of. Let the record stand, as Christopher said, North Korea said, hey, okay, we'll give up the nuclear weapons. Can you give us a non-aggression pact so that you won't attack us? Can you do that? And the U.S. said, no.